Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For the last couple of years, a couple of decades in some sense, agencies have been working to transition to fully electronic records. Recently, the pandemic and other challenges got in the way. Now the White House and the National Archives have pushed back that digital deadline to the summer of 24. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with NARA's Chief Records Officer, Lawrence Brewer. So just a little bit of background as we get into where we are in January 2023. We issued M1921, transitioned to electronic records, you know, back in July of 2019. And then COVID-19 became priority number one as all agencies work to keep their staff safe and their missions successful. So now, more than two years later, COVID is still here. There's no denying the impact that the pandemic has had on agencies accomplishing their critical goals in M1921. You know, as we were coordinating with the Office of Management and Budget, why we believe we needed to extend the M1921 deadlines to reflect the reality that agencies needed more time. So you might ask, you know, what did agencies need more time for? And we've had a lot of interaction with agencies. We've gotten a lot of reporting data from agencies. And there's really two areas where we felt like there needed to be some adjustment in those deadlines. And the first is in transferring analog or paper records to offsite storage. And the issue there is you need staff on site to prepare those records to go to federal record centers operated by NARA or other vendors who store records offsite. And because of COVID, agencies couldn't get staff into buildings to do that work. Similarly, the other area where we really wanted agencies to make progress and and focus um, their resources on was in digitization. But in order to do digitization, you have to also be able to get staff on site to handle the paper records that need to be digitized. And again, that was severely affected by COVID. So, I mean, we really felt like, you know, it was something that needed to be done to acknowledge the reality of where we are. But it's also important to note that the extension that we've provided, which is in M2307, that came out on December 23rd, is that it is only an extension for 18 months. You know, this is not a government-wide game of kick the can. This is a limited amount of time where we really want, and when I say we, the National Archives, the Office of Management and Budget, expect agencies to prioritize the work on these requirements that are still in effect in M1921 and accelerate their progress towards achieving these goals. So that's where we are in 2023 as we kick off the calendar year. We're gonna be focusing on issuing updated guidance, issuing new regulations and providing additional oversight and reporting to facilitate and support this work with all the other federal agencies. Got it. And what are the big lessons learned from the last couple of years under M1921? Because that did kick off a lot of activity in those two big areas, transferring analog records and digitization initiatives that were obviously stunted by COVID-19 and other factors. But what, what did you learn about best practices or you know things that didn't work that maybe you want to change over these next 18 months? What can you share there? We learned a lot, as I think other agencies did and in various other lines of business. But perhaps the most significant lesson that we learned as agencies were continuing to work on this transition to fully electronic government is how important electronic records management is to mission effectiveness. 
So as most of us were working off-site in our kitchens, in our dining rooms, we learned that paper-based processes or pushing paper around is no longer viable. So through our reporting data, we learned that agencies that already made investments in electronic records management prior to the pandemic were much more successful in meeting their agency goals. On the flip side, the transition has presented some challenges, and, and we've heard from a number of agencies on a few points. The first is there is still this culture of paper in a lot of agencies, and it's really like a change management issue in overcoming that. And while the pandemic, I think, did really significantly push agencies forward, even the ones who haven't invested you know, prior to the pandemic, there is still a lot of change management in addition to process improvement work that needs to be done. Along with that, obtaining more resources, including funding and staff and the right staff with the right skills continues to be a challenge. And that's something that we acknowledge. We've certainly acknowledge along with the Office of Management and Budget that this is work that is both important but does require some investment. And then the last issue that we've heard from agencies and, and you know, it, it kind of goes without saying, but there are large volumes of records out there. And, you know, that includes a lot of legacy paper records and legacy systems that need to be either modernized or transformed. And there's a lot of it. So while we feel like these are the right goals and are setting agencies up for success going forward, we understand that looking backwards, the legacy issues still need to be managed. So agencies are going to have to be able to grapple with both. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned how you expect agencies to prioritize work on this. What's the mechanism for instilling some level of accountability here? So I think, you know, for the most part, agencies get the value proposition of working electronically and fully electronically. We've talked about some of the reasons why we need to do it. So I think for most agencies, the motivation is there. It's how do they get there? How do they resource it? How do they fund it? And then from NAR's perspective and OMB's perspective, how can we support agencies in doing this? So we are constantly advocating and in contact with agencies. As I said, there's a lot for NAR to do, and, and we can certainly help with providing guidance and support, um, identifying those best practices and lessons learned and being able to share those with other agencies through our oversight work. And we are working with the Office of Management and Budget, and they certainly come at it from a, a different angle than the National Archives does, and they stand, they're standing by and ready to support as well. In terms of accountability, I mean, these are requirements, and we expect agencies to meet these requirements. And we, the National Archives and the administration through OMB, will continue to monitor the progress that agencies are making. We require annual reports from all agencies on their progress, and we are going to be evaluating those closely and monitoring progress over these next 18 months. And I think one thing folks might not realize is that there is an exception aspect to this where agencies can request exceptions to this deadline of June 2024. Do you see a high bar for exceptions? What would agencies have to do to really say, hey, we need to continue managing these these permanent records in a paper format? 
the memo itself and <clears throat> a NARA bulletin that we issued subsequent to the release of M1921 does cover exceptions and the process for how to request them from the National Archives and the Office of Management and Budget. We provided some criteria in there. The memo does mention, you know, cost burden. It does mention a, a number of conditions where we would be prepared to evaluate on a case-by-case basis, exceptions from agencies. And we are reviewing them. We've gotten a number of them in from agencies. And there are certainly situations where they're appropriate. So we do expect them to be limited in, in nature and for particular reasons that we would then evaluate. And like any rule, there's going to be exceptions and, and we're prepared to, to evaluate those. And as we're reviewing them, one of the things that, that we are doing is as we provide uh, responses back to agencies on requests for exceptions, we are building in a process where those approvals are contingent upon reporting of progress so that we can monitor how the agency is continuing to make improvements. So for some exceptions, it may be limited in nature and they may just be needing uh, some additional time to make progress. And we would be checking in or requiring the agencies to report during that period of time so that we can be assured that they are taking the right actions to move towards fully electronic processes. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth. There's going to be quite a bit of review. But all in all, we do expect them to be fairly limited in nature. Got it. And, you know, beyond the policy and the deadlines, I know NARA has also been working on electronic records management standards, uh, as well as solutions and services under the Federal Electronic Records Modernization Initiative, or FERMI, as it's called. Do you have any update there? What, what kind of services and help, I guess, are you providing to agencies through the auspices of FERMI or otherwise to kind of help them get after these big goals? Well, thank you for asking about Fermi. It, it is certainly an initiative that we've been trying to shine a light on and provide a little bit more attention to, not only within the government, but within the private sector. So yes, we continue to work with our partners at, at GSA and uh, with other private sector providers to promote products and services that meet NARA's electronic records management requirements. So we started by developing a set of lifecycle universal electronic records management requirements, which by the way, we are revising and updating this year. And we are also working with other existing business lines and shared services across the government to incorporate these electronic records management requirements into their offerings. So. We're trying to deal with it on, on a number of different fronts, always looking for opportunities where we can leverage what we do well, which is requirements and our knowledge of records management, and seeing how we can build some momentum with the private sector and with other agencies who want to require the kinds of tools that they need to better manage electronic records. So there's still quite a lot that we can do and much that we can do to support agencies who are looking for a more simplified process for procuring these services. And through Fermi, that's what we are trying to do, working with GSA. 
Got it. Yeah, and you mentioned the electronic records standards a couple times now. And I just wanted to ask, what's the importance of those? This this is essentially telling agencies, hey, you have this paper record. Here are the standards by which you should go about putting it into an electronic format with the metadata and things like that. Is that, is that right? Yes, the requirements and the way we've designed the universal ERM requirements is really to cover the full life cycle. So when we we talk about the records management life cycle, we talk about records from creation through final disposition, whether that's disposal or transfer to the National Archives. So the requirements basically pull together from a variety of sources, authorities, requirements, standards, and identifies which ones are mandatory versus recommended, which ones are program requirements versus system requirements, and really puts it in a, a natural flow of like, if you're you're standing up a new system and you're creating records, these are the requirements that relate to that phase. Whereas, you know, if you're at a point where, you know, you're maybe decommissioning a system or you have records that or have historical value, here are the requirements around that final stage of the lifecycle disposition that will help you appropriately disposition those records. And yes, it does cover a number of things such as, as metadata, quality control, active management, and use of the records, and trying to, to give agency that, that sort of you know full suite. And really, one of the key values under Fermi is that it's allowed the private sector sort of insight into what these requirements are, so that as they're developing products and services, they can align to these requirements. And then with a GSA under Fermi, self-certify that their products meet the requirements so that if you're an agency, all you have to do is go to you know the special item number where these products are located, and you can feel confident that the product or the service meets NARA's requirements, which is a huge step, not only in terms of the research that agencies would have to do, but allowing agencies to then use GSA to more simply acquire the service, which they know will meet their basic fundamental needs. Is there anything else on specifically the digitization and these new goals that uh, you wanted to mention before we move on to other topics? Uh, the only thing I, I would add is that, you know, digitization, obviously, you know, for the legacy records, paper records is a critical effort that agencies need to undertake. So as we go forward, most records are born digital and should be born digital, but we have to factor in the legacy paper records and, and the records that in, in large volumes, in many cases, agencies still have. So we are working on finalizing our standards for digitizing permanent records. There should be a final rule that will be released this year that will provide those standards. All agencies have seen proposed versions of the, the digitization standards for permanent records. And of course, the digitization standards for temporary records were released quite a while ago. So those have already been in the hands of agencies and they cover everything that an agency would need to do as part of the digitization process, including the technical standards, but also the quality control, the metadata and everything else that you know you would have to have as you are making the digital copy, the replacement for the paper copy that was uh, digitized and is the source record. So. There'll be a lot more to, to be coming out of the National Archives related to digitization this year. As we get closer to issuing standards, there'll be frequently asked questions and other resources and tools 
that will be able to help agencies as they move forward with digitization. All right, something to watch out for. And so we've been talking about digitizing paper records and how that's a big issue. And now I want to turn to managing, you know, electronic records, emails, and everything else that you could think of that falls under kind of natively created digital records that you have to worry about managing. You recently announced that NARA would be expanding the capstone approach that you now use for sort of automatically archiving email to other forms of digital messages like text messages or, you know, chats and things like that. I just want to ask, you know, what big issues are you seeing in that space? It seems like a fast rising tide of electronic messages that you have to manage. And what's the approach, your approach for getting after that going forward? So just I have to say, I'm, I'm glad that you've been following the guidance that's been coming out of the National Archives. And you're right, January has been a busy month. We issued a lot of guidance and, and memos out to agencies that I think we were just piling up before the holidays and we were able to get some out. And yet one of them was the recently issued NARA Bulletin and the Associated General Record Schedule that expands the capstone or role-based approach beyond email to other electronic messages. So we've gotten a lot of positive feedback. A lot of agencies, most agencies have adopted the capstone approach for email. So we wanted to see how we could leverage that successful framework and expand it beyond email to text messages, chats, and IMs or instant messages. One of the things that we acknowledge, and I think you know all of us can relate to this, is that these types of electronic messages are often replacing email as the way we work and the way, in this case, agencies are communicating and carrying out official business. So two things, too, I do want to note is that while using the capstone approach for both email and messages is not mandatory, it does provide agencies with that established framework for managing these important records more effectively. So you mentioned big issues. And one of the things that I think we, we are seeing and hearing from agencies as we move forward with what I believe is a really good new tool and resource for agencies with respect to electronic messages is that we need to have better and more widely available tools for agencies to manage these types of messages. Email is much simpler when it comes to implementation. It's got structured metadata fields. It's something that we are all very familiar with, and there are good tools for helping us you know, capture and preserve email records. For text messages and, and these other types of messages, you need certain types of tools to be able to capture the various elements of the message, the content, and the metadata properly. So we have requirements, but what we really need are more vendors and tools that will allow agencies to more simply find and procure the kind of technology they need to preserve these kinds of messages. What the approach does and what the GRS and the new bulletin allows is more flexibility for agencies if they have an implementation or technological approach for capturing and preserving these types of messages. Now we've given them the policy framework to be able to do that. Got it. So you've got the policy framework in place that allows you agencies to go forth and do this automated, more seamless capture of these, these official electronic records. 
you mentioned you need more vendors, more tools. What's the plan for getting after that side of it? Is this something where agencies will have to f- find them on their own or are there other resources out there? There's no one way to really solve that problem. So like in other areas where you know we've had similar challenges, you know we, we certainly work with the agencies for the agencies that are doing well, we always try to identify those best practices and try and share those with other agencies. We have a very active oversight program where we go into agencies and, and look at and evaluate what they're doing. So we'll hopefully be getting more data from agencies in this area as well. And Fermi may also be another area where we could explore this and be able to work directly with the private sector and vendors and the kinds of offerings that they are going to have and see if there are any out there that can certify that they meet the requirements around electronic message management. I think from that approach and then working directly with agencies and then just, you know, within the National Archives, you know, looking at, at other ways through, you know, our, our own assistance to agencies, through our training, through our various other programs where we're, you know, routinely interacting with agencies see if there are opportunities there and information that can be gained that we can then put in front of the private sector or vendors or anybody else working in this area to, to really help us move that conversation forward. Of course, you know, last year, one of the big news stories was the lost Secret Service text messages. That really shined a spotlight on these issues. I'm not sure if it got to the point where people were talking about narrow bulletins, but was there any lessons learned, takeaways there? Does this create any sort of additional momentum to really get agencies behind these requirements so that you don't have another situation like that in the future? Again, I think it goes back to you know what I was just mentioning is that you know there there's always multiple angles that you have to you know really tackle these these problems with, and you look at back at you know what happened with as you mentioned, Secret Service and a number of other agencies, it it comes down to making sure that agencies have the policies in place that tell their employees, and most importantly, you know, the senior officials and political appointees, what their responsibilities are for records management, making sure that there's training in place and really good records management training that does highlight what staff should be doing and not doing. And all of that, you know, really does need to come First is the starting point, you know, the policy, the training, the awareness. And then you can then start, you know, to, to make sure that you have the technology, the tools needed to support that. So it doesn't make any sense to have a policy where you don't have the technology or tools in place to be able to implement it. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, maybe in the past has been an issue that we need to really pay more attention to as we go forward. One of the things that we talk about a lot within the National Archives, especially, you know, from the policy perspective is we spend a lot of time doing the research, talking with agencies, because the last thing that we want to do is issue a policy in the National Archives that agencies cannot implement. And I think the same holds true within individual agencies as they figure out what to do with things like text messages or mobile device management. You got to have the policy and the training in place, but you also have to make sure that when they implement it, that you're using the kinds of, of tools, processes, procedures, if, if procedures can handle it, to make sure that it, it can be successfully done. Lawrence Brewer, Chief Records Officer for the U.S. Government, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Still to come, what 2022 returns on TSP funds say about the year ahead. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost... uh... Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really, um, you know, we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges. You know and but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit 
uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I. I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yep. is equal at Special Olympics. And, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.